I knew it was ahead of us it's in the body of Scripture we are going through, but I did not try to plan it to come to it today. It just happened that way, and perhaps God had a hand in that. Uh, but we've been going through this section of Isaiah from 40 up to where we are today, beginning chapter 52, understanding that God is going to use an end-time remnant of His people to help show that He is indeed the living God. And I chose this particular section of Scripture, though I could have picked many, many more, because it has to do specifically with the end-time church and the events that have to be in order for Him to show His godliness. Now, He could do it, as I've said before, without our help, but He has always chosen human beings to help further His purpose of salvation. He has always put human leaders there, and He has chosen you to be leaders. How do you know that? Because He's shared with you this information. And if He shares it with you, then He intends you to do something about it, to act on it, and to fulfill the commission that comes with the knowledge. Knowledge is not given without forethought from God. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So no one can call himself, no one can have his mind open to the truth unless God himself causes that. So he has taken the weak and the base, which is us. Now there are many, many more weak and base on the face of the earth. There are more of them than there are any other kind of human being by far. And it is only by the grace and mercy of God that he chose to share his knowledge with you and me. So with that comes a very mighty responsibility. And as we near the end of this age, that responsibility becomes more pronounced and comes more into focus. Because he is looking for a people who will, as the sermonette said, turn their hearts to him. And I think it is worth mentioning that in the sermonette at the end, in those last verses, it says that some had not sufficiently prepared themselves, as Gordon brought out, but God was willing to forgive anyway if they prepared their hearts to seek God. And I wanted to add to that this comment. God is willing to suspend the rules to show mercy on those who will turn their hearts to Him. The wages of sin is death. And the biggest way in which He has shown that He is willing to suspend the rules is through the death of His Son, that we might not have to die for our sins, that He died for our sins. Now, He did not, in, he did not suspend the rules entirely, did He? Because... Sin does require death. But he died in our stead for us, that we might not have to suffer the penalty of our own sins. So in that sense, even as in Second Chronicles 30, he suspended the rules, even though they were not fully sanctified, and blessed them and accepted them anyway. He has to do it with you and me. Because we are not fully prepared, 
We are not by any means as God is. We still have our flaws, our faults, our sins, our laziness, our inattention. Many, many problems that we still have. He is willing to set aside through the sacrifice of His Son and forgive us and accept us. What an incredible thing that is. Now in chapter 51, we saw the timing in verses 6 and 7, that this is premillennial, this is still talking of the end time, at a time when he is saying, I will yet shake the heavens and the earth and cause those things to happen. And in verse 9, perhaps I did not elucidate enough and really what this means, where it says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the eternal. Now this is in two levels. Uh, Zechariah 6.12, I'll not turn back there, we've been there before. That context in Zechariah 4, 3 through 6 is of the two witnesses in the remnant church. And there he calls the rubbabel the branch other place, I think, an arm of the eternal. And Zerubbabel, in that sense, is a type of Christ. So this is a call for he who is functioning in that capacity to awake, to arise. And as I put it last week, not that God is asleep, but there is that portion of him, which I think the word dormant might fit better, There is that portion of his power, of his strength, of his ability to part the waves and to back up the rivers that has been dormant. In other words, he has not been exercising that part of his ability and power. So this is a call to come to the same kind of miracle and drama that he did at the Red Sea and at the Jordan with Joshua and the people to give us that kind of deliverance, as Jeremiah says, he will, which will eclipse and put into far distant memory even the Red Sea and the Jordan River. Events will be so much more dramatic here at the end that we will forget those events. It will be so real, so personal, so alive and powerful. And it is going to shake the nations and the loins of kings. So he says, put on that kind of strength. Awake as in the ancient days and the generations of old. So it's not that he is asleep by any means. He can't abide our sins and has his face turned from us. And the only way he can bear to turn his face to us is as it says in Isaiah 44, he will forgive our sins and remove them as a cloud. And when he does that, Then he can bear to look upon us. And tonight, this Passover season, is a picture of the time when all sin that we have committed is wiped away. Now, we pray for forgiveness daily because we know we fall short. But here is a formal reminder every year of what that sacrifice is. It it causes us to focus on our Savior. So the call here in the context is for that kind of awakening. Then it goes down down in verse 17 of 51 and says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem and Zion again being the church spiritually, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. I've quoted that till I'm blue in the face almost. But it shows and is a very strong key to understanding prophecy. The first and foremost, all these prophecies apply to the spiritual body of Christ, the spiritual Jew, Jerusalem, and Zion. So it's a call to us, first of all. It, it has a, another fulfillment later on uh, in the millennium when Christ returns. But this is his return to his church to use it to further his purposes, one of which is to show who he is. So he says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which have drunk at the hand of the Eternal the cup of his fury, and we've seen ourselves scattered uh, and spewed out of his mouth. So we have felt God's fury and his anger at our Laodicean, lackadaisical, half-hearted approach. Then it shows in verse 18 that there's been no leadership really in the church that we can all look to like there was prior to Herbert Armstrong's death. He didn't know everything he could have known, but he didn't need to know many things which we have since learned. Because God knew he wasn't going to be around when this thing began to wrap up over a quarter century later. Uh, so there were things he didn't need to know, but he knew enough to put us on the path toward salvation and the basic truths of the Bible. Then he says he's going to take that cup of trembling, of fear, of confusion, of insecurity out of our hands in verse 22 and put it on those who afflict us. Now I'm covering this again because it picks up the same thread of thought in chapter 52. Verse 23, I will put it into the hand of them that afflict you, which have said to your soul, bow down that we may go over, and you have laid your body as the ground and as the street to them that went or walked over you. So we bow down to the system around us. We accepted its thinking, its philosophies, its approach to life in many, many ways. We just let the system walk over us, the culture around us, the American way. We've even been somewhat proud as Americans of our way of life and wish the whole world could be like America, haven't we? And yet God is about to destroy America because of its sins and lack of attention to Him. So that which we have even been proud of, God says we should be ashamed of. And He is going to destroy it like Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that enough said? All right, then in chapter 52, he says again, Awake! Wake up! Be aware! Quit slumbering! Quit sleeping! Grasp what is happening! Don't let this sneak up on you. But wake up to what you're doing! How you're letting Babylon affect you in terms of your entertainment, your way of living, your way of thinking, your morality. Everything you do, this world affects you if you let it. And the more you listen to its music and its television and some of the garbage on the internet and on and on, <coughs> the more it affects you. God wants our attention on Him, not entertaining ourselves and going about our selfish desires. 
That's why he says, wake up to what is going on. This world has walked all over us, and we have allowed it. That was brought out in the sermonette as well. Maybe God is doing these things not coincidentally, but bringing them to our attention just prior to the Passover itself and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Because we need to be aware of what needs to be overcome, of what is around us that is causing us to be half-hearted toward God and not have our focus there. So he says, wake up and put on your strength, O Zion. Don't be willy-nilly. Don't be wishy-washy. Oh, well, this is rated R, but so what? It's got a little nudity, but so what? It's got a little adultery and fornication, but so what? Most of the movie isn't that, just that little part. We're to see no evil and hear no evil. But that's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to get. You know, Satan would like for us to have a little evil in our life, wouldn't he? It doesn't take much to destroy us. So he's only concerned that we have a little. He's not concerned we have a lot. Oh, there's a lot out there if you want it. Well, most of us would say, well, I wouldn't watch that. But I would maybe watch this. We need to understand the influence this world has on our thinking. Put on your strength, the strength of God and His Spirit. Because of ourselves, we are weak, and we give in. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. We are to be holy before God. The holy city. It's what he's called us to be. Holy Jerusalem. The spiritual Jews. The beautiful garments are white. White pictures Righteousness. So he wants us to wear white, not those spotted with the world, as Peter, I think, put it, but clean, holy garments is what we need to have on. Unspotted by the world. That's what he's telling us here. Peter was essentially quoting from this verse when he said that. For henceforth, from the time that this scripture comes to pass actually this year, next year, whenever it happens. There shall no more come to you the uncircumcised and the unclean. God is going to remove Babylon from around us. He tells us to come out of her, my people, and not be partakers in her sins and her plagues. But there is a time He is going to remove Babylon very soon. A financial crash, a military takeover, and this nation will be no more, at least as we have known it. It will be in captivity to the Gentiles. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise, sit up, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. We're as much in captivity to Zion today in this nation as those original Jews were to Nebuchadnezzar, who were carried off into captivity. 
This world has a hold on our necks that they will not turn loose. (coughs) So he tells us to sit up and shake it off and not let them walk on us anymore. Now he has a great deal in store for us if we will heed this warning. And the ensuing verses and chapters ahead indicate that. But we have to do our part. We have to be willing. Most of the world does not want to shake Babylon off. They don't want to see it destroyed before them, do they? They want it to go on with their job and their big screen TV and their whatever they worship and adore. They don't want it to go away. Now, if we want God's way, we want this world around us to go away, not cling to it. But we have certainly been in captivity of it. The whole end time church now over 70 years has been in the captivity of Babylon. And God says, turn loose, sit up, don't let them walk on you anymore. Now, this is a final warning, if you will. Because the events that are coming after this are not far away. And we find ourselves in this position, just as the Jews were. Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9 is very timely today. Because they were at the end of the Babylonian captivity, and Daniel was praying that he and the people be forgiven of their sins and how they had come so far short of the glory of God and asked for mercy anyway. And we are right near the end of 70 years, perhaps a little over, and even that captivity was not finite, but lasted and lapped over 70 years, just as ours has. I think he began to give us opportunity to come out here and to begin to shake it off. But even here, we have allowed it. We have brought it in. We have not divorced ourselves from it. We have still let it influence, influence us and affect us. Now, he's going to go on down and show a time when the two witnesses are going to come together. And God is going to begin to bless So those events of Zechariah, of Haggai and Zechariah, are almost upon us as we have come to the end of this captivity of Babylon. And now it's time, he says, don't let them walk on you. Separate yourselves. For thus says the eternal, verse 3, you have sold yourselves for nothing. We just let them into our lives. We didn't require a price. You know, sell your soul to Babylon for 30 pieces of silver or something. We just let them have rule over us. We let them influence us to do sin and immorality of every kind. And you shall be redeemed without money. God is offering free salvation, free deliverance if we will but wake up and shake Babylon off our necks. He will take care of us and deliver us. For thus says the eternal God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there. They went in willingly, didn't they? 
Joseph was taken captive, sold by his brothers, but Jacob and his sons went down there willingly. And he's using the same analogy here. We have allowed ourselves to be a part of this sinful world willingly. We've gone along with it. It's not like they had to come capture us, is it? We were born into it and just went with the flow. And the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. They're willing and ready to afflict us, to lord it over us, to kill us spiritually, aren't they? To take away righteousness. That's the way the world around us is. Now, therefore, he says, since you've allowed yourselves to be in this position, now, therefore, what have I here? What am I looking at, says the eternal, that my people is taken away for nothing? You know, these are my people that I've called out of the world, and they're letting themselves go and not even giving, not even buying a ticket. They're just letting the world do this to them. They that rule over them make them to howl, says the Eternal. Both our national governments and international governments cause us to howl because of the wrongs that are done to us. And even in the church, the ministry became overlords and oppressors and in many cases tried to live our lives for us, not only hold our hand, but make us do things. You are supposed to rule your own spirit. You are supposed to hold God's hand. I am not here to live your life for you whatsoever. I have trouble living my own. I am here to cause you to take the hand of God, to point you at God. Not to oppress you and make you howl. But that's what has occurred in the church, unfortunately. And my name continually every day is blasphemed because people allow sin in their lives, and that is blasphemy against God. Because, and it is idolatry. Any sin you commit is idolatry because you're putting your own self and selfishness ahead of God. And that is idolatry. We have to put our idols aside. As humans in America today, we don't think we're idol worshippers, do we? This is a nation that accepts Christ and accepts God, or at least used to be more. We didn't think of ourselves as idol worshippers. We didn't have all kinds of idols in our homes. Well, maybe... Catholic and some Protestant influence there to some degree. And you stop to think about it. Yeah, there's Washington Monument and a lot of other things that are ungodly and are clearly idols. But as individuals, we didn't think of ourselves as idolatrous. And yet every one of us is. All lust, all covetousness of desiring something that is illegal for us Colossians 3, 5 said, is idolatry. So we break the first in all commandments.
and we blaspheme God in so doing. Verse 6, Therefore my people shall know my name. God says, I'm not going to tolerate this. This, this condition is not going to continue. One way or the other, I'm going to put a stop to it. They'll know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. We can read scripture. We can do as it says in the Proverbs, like the whore who wipes her mouth and says, I have done no sin. God is not going to allow that to continue. They're going to learn who God is. He is alive and he will take an active part. So that echoes what was said back in chapter 51, verse 9. Awake, O eternal, and that part of you which is dormant, come alive and show your people and ultimately the world who you are. The stage is being set, brethren. Verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings. Now this is a repeat of Isaiah 40, where it says to comfort his people that the end of this age is near, and begins this context that we have been going through. And says that good tidings need to be brought to Jerusalem and to Zion. A knowledge of what God is about to do and how he's going to do it to show who he is. So we, if we're part of the end time church and hopefully of the faithful remnant, he will use us to help show the rest of the church and the world that. And I hope that we can all be a part of that. It is much bigger than a few of us here. It includes about 10% of what was the church that will be faithful and be called together to do it. But I want us to be part of that. So we are reading these passages which bring good tidings to the church now that publishes peace. Haggai chapter 2 says, In this place will I bring peace. That is, as the latter temple is being built here in the end time. The former temple under Herbert Armstrong did not result in peace. It resulted in bifurcation and division. It resulted in argument and frustration. Ultimately, utter confusion. And it broke apart. So peace was not contained there. As Hezekiah said in Isaiah 39, at least there will be peace in my time. Now, there was trouble during Herbert Armstrong's time among his children, us, but it didn't come apart until after he died. And it is into that confusion and division that God introduces, comfort you, my people. And what is the message? We're all grass And we need to behold our God. So that whole context up to where we are today is behold your God. We're weak, we're human. Without Him we will wither and blow away as the grass. With Him we can prosper. So peace is being published here. That brings good tidings of good. That publishes salvation. It says there is an answer to what is going on in the church. That we can be saved out of it. 
There is an answer. These scriptures of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, of Ezekiel, and the Minor Prophets, and Daniel, echo what Isaiah is saying here and tell the same story over and over again. That says to Zion, to the church, your God reigns. He reigns supreme. He is all-powerful. And he is going to back up these words of Isaiah. He is going to show his mighty power and that he does reign. So that is the message that needs to go out today to any who will listen of what God is about to do. Now we can languish and we can say we've waited and we've waited. Where is it? Is God slack concerning his promise? We've been here in the desert now for several years. When's it going to happen? We can get impatient. On the other hand, we can surrender to God and His perfect timing, His perfect plan, and know that whether it's this year or next or whenever it comes, that it is according to His plan. Although, there is a caveat there. He tells us, do not let Him have any rest until He brings these things to pass. That we are to implore Him daily, And fervently, thy kingdom come, and that these promises, even before it is here, be fulfilled. And he says he will intervene before the flesh fails before him. And with us, we can become weary, frustrated, and fail either physically or spiritually. But he tells us, don't do that. Blessed is he who is found so doing. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Endurance implies difficulty. If it was not difficult, it would not require endurance. Okay? Now in verse 8, he begins to show how this is going to come about. Thy watchmen, more than one there, that's plural. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Eternal shall bring again Zion. He shows when this joy is going to begin to hit. And that is when the two primary watchmen of the end time, the Joshua and Zerubbabel of Zechariah 3 and 4, come to see eye to eye. It implies a division there. That same division is implied in Zechariah 4. We'll not go there. We've been there before. But he shows that things are going to turn. And when God begins to bring back Zion, he begins to bless. He begins to show that he is God to the church and those few faithful remnants. Then the two witnesses are going to come together. They're going to sing together when they see eye to eye, agree, when God turns this thing around. Because that will be the signal of where God is working and what he is doing. And they will get together and say, this is correct. And then God says, when that occurs, verse 9, break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. 
Now he shows that the true Jerusalem has been desolate for many generations in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, and Jeremiah. And the cities, the towns of Judah have been laid waste for many generations. And then in chapter 58 of Isaiah, how those who serve God and keep His Sabbaths will restore the desolate and waste places. So, the true Jerusalem physically has been abandoned and is desolate. And no man even walks there or goes there for any particular purpose. God said it would be a habitation of jackals and lizards. So the true Jerusalem, wherever it is, the original true Jerusalem, is that way today. And those who obey God will raise it up and bring it back to life. But there is the spiritual Jerusalem. That's the church. And those are the people that are going to bring it back. So the waste places of the church, as well as the waste places of the original promised land, are going to both come to life here in the end time to show who God is. Do a little research. You will find that most of the places in the Middle East and what they call Israel today did not even have biblical names until the 3rd, 4th century when Constantine's mother named most of them. They did not have those names when Christ walked the earth. They were given by Constantine's mother. It's a matter of history that has been hidden and disguised. So God is going to raise up physical Jerusalem as well as spiritual. For the Eternal has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. So God says, we're going to break into singing when the two witnesses come together and see eye to eye, and God begins to bless. He says it'll be in the first month in Joel 2. Afterwards, sometime after that, then he will pour out his spirit in great abundance. The Eternal has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. So in this context, right at the end, God is going to show his mighty holy arm. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So then he gives some instruction. He says, this is going to happen. And here's what I want you to do. Depart you. Depart you. Go you out from thence. Or get away from what? The antecedent here is those who have had us in captivity. Babylon around us in Egypt. Depart from them. Touch no unclean thing. Go you out of the midst of her. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. So we have to shake every vestige of Babylon and Egypt off ourselves and live according to God's ways because He wants us to bear His vessels. To show who he is to the rest of the world. He is laying a very heavy opportunity and responsibility upon us in the end. If we read these scriptures, there comes an accountability with knowledge. We cannot ignore it. He will hold us responsible for it. That's scary. He's given us great opportunity 
Wouldn't you like to do something, something about the way the world is? Don't we bemoan daily the bad news and the awful conditions, the deplorable state of the economy and the food we have to eat, the junk that has been modified? We talk about it all the time and sigh and cry for the abominations on this earth. <coughs> and yet most people feel utterly helpless, don't they? And so do we. Why? Because we are not seeing the bigger picture and the vision that is before us. We can do something about it. We can be a part of an end-time remnant that God is going to use to show that He is God and that He can deliver and that He will give us the garden of God. He will change conditions. He will give us good food both spiritually and physically. He is going to show a microcosm of the kingdom of God to the world through His remnant church of how things should be. We can make a difference. We can be a light to the world. We are not helpless like the rest of the world. We are not helpless like the rest of the church, brethren. If we understand this, we have opportunity here to restore to ourselves the mind of God and to be a people that He can forgive and wipe the sins away from like a cloud and have a remnant of the church come. Because they see the hand of God, Emmanuel, God with us. Now we're using God with us for Christ, the deliverer at the end time, because we very much desire that. And we need God with us. And He is going to come suddenly to His temple. And He is going to be with us. We have to do our part to cause that to happen. And as ill-prepared as we are, He is going to wipe away our sins and accept us anyway, as He did in Second Chronicles 30, and as He does in the New Testament when the sacrifice of His Son comes for us. We're going to get to that here in just a few moments. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the Eternal. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Eternal will be before you, and the God of Israel will be, or will gather you up, as the Hebrew says. Not be your re-reward or necessarily rear guard, though that could be implied, but He will gather you up. Doesn't He say in many places He'll gather us from the north, south, east, and west, from the ends of the earth? So the gathering here at the end time is not a hasty one. This is not speaking of the flight when the abomination of desolation is set up to a place of safety. This is a coming out that there will be time to accomplish. Then you will flee for your very life, or they will kill you. This one, he says the two witnesses are going to get together. They're going to preach salvation. God is going to begin to bless his people that we are to be clean and shake Babylon off 
And then he will gather his remnant together. And they will have time to come from all over the earth. Now this isn't talking about putting away sin in that sense. Never does he tell us to come without haste out of sin. We are to hurry out of sin. Egypt pictured sin and they came out of Egypt with their shoes on, with their staff in their hand, ready to go as soon as the word came from Pharaoh that night. Get out. And they hastened to get out. And we are to hasten out of sin. And we have seven days ahead of us beginning this evening to put that sin out. And Christ does the majority of the work by providing a sacrifice whereby our sin might be removed. Then we have six more days after his initial biggest uh, part to do our part in continuing to put it out. We need to examine up until tonight what we are and where we lack and how far short, short we fall. Then his sacrifice is to remove our sin and we are to continue to put it out. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And now it goes into speaking of Christ himself very directly. I find it very interesting that we wound up here on this last service before the Passover. I did not, as I say, plan it that way. I knew it was up here, but I didn't know when I'd get here. Because you know me. Sometimes I make one chapter, sometimes two a week. I had no idea how this would come out. But it's very timely, I think, to consider this right now a few hours before we take the Passover. As many as were astonished at you, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So what we're being told here is that he, has, he suffered more damage to his body than any human being who has ever existed in whatever tortures mankind has cooked up over the years. His form, his body, was so defiled that he was essentially unrecognizable at the end of the beatings and the scourgings and the punishment that he took. Stripped his flesh off. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him. Now he is going to shake this world in the same way that he was shaken, he's saying here. They are going to be stripped of their dignity. They are going to be stripped of the way they looked. They're going to suffer famine and pestilence in the sword. And they're going to suffer what he suffered because they will not now accept him. So he says, if you will accept his sacrifice and apply it personally and live according to his ways, you will escape that. But not the nations of the world, nor will those in the church who do not respond. They will go into tribulation and they are going to be stripped naked and butchered and cut and starved, misused, abused, and enslaved. And if they stand up at some point for God, they will be killed. And that will happen to most. 
the king shall shut their mouths at him when he raises his holy arm. They will stop their mouths. For that which had not been told them shall they see. They're going to see all these things coming to pass, and they've not been told. They're going to start happening. There's going to be a remnant church with two speakers, essentially, who are going to tell them what's going on, and they still won't believe it. But they're going to see it. And that which they had not heard shall they then consider. Whoa! What's happening here? Who has believed our report? What Isaiah wrote here those thousands of years ago is now a today thing. We've been reading these scriptures now for up to seven, sixteen years anyway. Who's believed it? Not very many. They pay no attention to what God is saying here. We've been reading them, been going over them. It's like you were talking to hear your head rattle. Nobody pays any attention. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm of the Lord is Zerubbabel that God will use to shake the nations. They don't believe it. They don't understand it. They don't know what it's talking about. The world, I mean the church, has had a very thin, weak understanding of what is coming. They just think suddenly two men are going to appear and preach for three and a half years. They don't understand Revelation 11, 1 and 2 about leaving out the Gentile world and examining the church and the altar, the ministry, and them that worship there, the people of God. They don't understand Zechariah 4 about the preaching first to the church and getting it straightened out before the message to the Gentiles and the rest of the world begins. They don't understand these things we know about a remnant coming together of the church. Who in the church knows that? Who has read these scriptures and understood? Who's believed Isaiah's report? Yet God is going to reveal his arm very soon now. So, why do we have here, almost as an inset it would seem, chapter 53, in this context of the end time church? Now there are scriptures in Isaiah 20, I mean Psalm 22 and 59 and 69 and various, or 55 and 69, various other places where God talks about Christ's sacrifice and all that he went through. I don't know whether we'll have time to get there, probably not today. But why is this right here? Did not Song of Songs and the story about Christ and his bride say that he would meet his bride in the springtime when the turtle dove sings in the uh, secret places of the stairs? Does he not say he will begin to bless in the first month of the year, around Passover time? 
the setting here of God bringing back Zion and beginning to bless is around the Passover season. And that is why he put Isaiah 53 where Isaiah 53 is. That we're being implored to wake up and know that the end is near of this age and that the remnant church has a job to do and needs to be shaking Babylon off its neck in order to get it done. And then he turns it around at a Passover time. That is why this is here, where it is, when it is. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. Doesn't he say he's going to take a tender twig in Ezekiel 17 from the top branches, and that which was dry will come alive, and that which was alive dies out? He's going to start over. The former temple under her Armstrong is gone. The new and latter temple under the two witnesses of the remnant church is about to form. That's where we are. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So, he and that which he will work through is like dry ground. It has been nothing, amounted to nothing. Even as he said, he was nothing. It was the Father who did the work. Of himself, he could do nothing, he said, but the Father which is in me. So he calls upon us to do the same thing that he did. We don't have any form or comeliness or beauty any more than he did as a human being, do we? We look at ourselves as a poor, pitiful, wretched group of people weak and base, who have trouble overcoming the simplest things along with the difficult, do we not? So we need to turn to our Father in heaven and help, get help in a time of need. We can't overcome, we cannot grow through a, sore, through a show of willpower. We don't have it. We need God's strength. If you're having troubles, go to God. That's where the answers are. Go to God. That's what Christ did throughout his life. He went to his Father. He prayed diligently so that he was able to handle what came to him. Now, he was tried. He was tempted in every way as we are. You have not had any temptation that Christ himself did not deal with. How did he handle it? He went to the Father. Draw on God, because it's the only way you can handle your problems. It's the only way he could handle his. <coughs> he set the example that we should follow in his steps. God alone can extend mercy, pardon, help, strength, and energy through his Spirit. We don't have it. On our own, we have to have His Spirit. We'll walk after the flesh if we don't. We're to walk in the Spirit. So there's no beauty in us, 
just as he physically had no beauty that anyone would want to look upon him. God made him unpretty, if you will, because he had to deal with being ugly. He had to deal with not being beautiful. He is despised and rejected of men. We don't like it at all when people put us down. We don't like it when they make any negative comment about us at all, do we? We like to gossip, but we don't like to hear it about ourselves. It doesn't hurt us to talk about somebody else. It hurts when others talk about us. So we feel free to blather on about each other as long as we don't hear something coming back about ourselves. That's how selfish we really are. But he was despised and rejected of men. He was hated by most everyone around him. That's not fun to live with. We've probably all seen children in school when we were there, or employees at work, wherever. But somewhere in our lives, we've seen people who were despised, not liked, because of their looks, because of their attitude, because of their mentality, because of deformations, humanly, or whatever it might be, a stutter, a lisp, a hair lip, whatever it is, we've seen. And we've seen people who were despised just for walking the earth. Despised for breathing. And that's the way Christ was. A man of sorrows. Somebody says, well, I'm not happy. Neither was our Savior. Now, he was happy. He was content in God. But he was a man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We don't automatically accept what he went through in our lives. We got all uptight about these things. He didn't. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We need to think about him. Now as we go into Passover and this night to be much remembered tonight, let's much remember what he went through. Now, we can argue all we want about some fine points of Exodus, but what night, really, when you look at the context here, is the biggest night of all? The night to be much remembered. The night he suffered. The night he was beat. The following day when he was killed. Does it really make sense... Considering the New Testament, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy set aside for the moment, does it make sense for Christ to have had the last Passover with his disciples, gone to the garden, had them sleep while he sweat blood in what he was about to have to go through, and then they came and arrested him and put him through torture all night long, through judgment of our sins the next day, and finally crucified. 
And by the end of the 14th, the beginning of the 15th, everything had been done. He was in the tomb. Was that a time to party? Was that a time to have rejoicing? No, that was entering the time when his sacrifice was finished and we are to continue putting sin out of our lives. That's why God separates it one plus six for a total of seven. The first is a feast day and a memorial and an ordinance forever because of what he went through on that day. And the next six, as Deuteronomy 16 points out, are where we continue the process. <coughs> because all that he did did not keep us from future sinning, did it? It only forgave what had transpired up to that point. Thankfully, it's a continuing sacrifice that we can go daily and ask for forgiveness. But those six days after the first most important one were for us to continue to put it out. Six is the number of man. A total of seven is the number of perfection which is achieved only through Christ. It could not have been eight days. One day, the memorial, the feast of Passover followed by an additional six for a total of seven, as Ezekiel 45 points out, the Feast of Seven Days. So one day for him to do the big thing, and six more for us to continue the process of walking without sin. Surely he has borne our griefs, verse 4, and carried our sorrows, Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We look at him and say, well, they beat him and killed him. But it was for our transgressions. He wouldn't have had to go through that except for your sin and mine. We're the reason this happened to him. <coughs> the very Son of God. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our sins. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. It takes the sacrifice of God to heal us. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. You can go to 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25 and read more about that. Peter quoted it. I won't turn there for sake of time. It is a repetition after all. And he does say there that when we are chastened, we must take it patiently. Even if we didn't do it, if we're blamed for something we didn't do, we have to take it patiently. I had someone very recently, very irate, saying they had been accused of something they didn't do. First Peter 2 tells us don't react that way. Might not have had every detail correct, but I certainly had the right person. I hear things about me all the time. 
Some of them I did, some of them I didn't do, and you'll probably never know which. And you hear things about you because people talk. Some of them are correct and some are not. But you know what? In each case, if they didn't get your sin right, they got you right. Because sinner you are. Sinner I am. So it really doesn't matter, does it? We take it all patiently. That's the way he did. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Not God's way. Our own way. Our selfishness. Our wanting. Our desires. What we want. We've all done it. And the eternal has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He didn't justify. He didn't defend. He didn't say, wait a minute, I didn't do that. You're all wrong. I'm going to get bitter because you accused me of something I think I didn't do, maybe. He opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. I have found it very interesting and instructive this past week because I was birthing lambs or helping mamas birth lambs all week. And it is not an easy task. It's kind of a day and night thing. You never know when they're going to have lambs and you never know whether they're going to come naturally and normally or breach or upside down or head first and not the feet out like they're supposed to come. You don't know if they're going to be deformed. You don't know if they're going to be Blind, you don't know if they're going to be healthy, but helpless they are. Little lambs, just born, in the cold, their noses hitting the manure, first thing in life. It's very difficult. And this week I saw a little lamb born, almost without a mouth, blind as could be, couldn't find its mama. A lost sheep. One that I told you about last week, the first one born that his mama rejected. We're having to bottle feed it. It's doing well, thank you. But it was almost dead when it was found Sabbath morning. We named it Lazarus. It came back from the dead. <laughs> or almost. As close to death as you can get. But then we had a couple that didn't make it. And the blind one, with a deformed mouth that couldn't even eat. So sad, a little lamb, so perfect in every other way. And yet it died. I could do nothing. I felt so helpless. So sad. Cried inside, if not openly. We're like little sheep who've lost our way. Little lambs who've gone our own way. And not the way of God. You know, God is going to be very sad because He looks upon His Christ being the shepherd and we're His lambs. And He cradles them, us in His arms. And yet He's going to have to knock some of us in the head. Some of us may not make it. Some of us will be consigned to a lake of fire because we're so deformed, so blind, so deaf, 
so unrepentant, so unteachable, so selfish, that the world and the kingdom of God would be better off, and we would be better off, if we were not there. Just as that little lamb would have been better off never having been born, as Solomon put it in the book of Ecclesiastes, because of the problems it was born with. Now we have been offered redemption. Our deformities can be healed through his stripes. Our lacks, our faults, our weaknesses can be taken care of. It was a hard week, but I'm glad I went through it. Because it helped me focus a little more on these scriptures. Verse 8, he was taken away to prison and to judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. It just struck me there, there are people who think that Christ did not die, that they faked his death, and then he lived 104 and married Mary Magdalene and a bunch of other women and had a whole bunch of kids, died at age 104, and is not at the throne of his Father in heaven. There's a lot of Mormon teaching in that. But it says here, who shall declare his generation? He didn't have a generation. He didn't have any children. He didn't marry He lived 33 and a half years on this earth celibate, not ever giving in to his urges and desires, hormones and natural, normal desires to marry, to have children. Never had that. You cannot speak of his generation because it never existed. He died without child. He was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Put away like any common human being. Nothing special. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Eternal to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Did it on purpose. Why? When you shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He had no generation of his own, but he considers us his seed. He considers us his generation. Though he had none physically, he has us. And we will be his children forevermore. And we can be the very bride of Christ And he is going to have many, many millions, billions of children in the future. He gave up having a wife and children on this earth so that he might live forever and have 144,000 as a wife with many billions of children throughout eternity. He has not called on you and me to do anything that he did not do for sake of the future. Even if we have to live this life single, unmarried, no physical children, we are only doing what Christ did a long time ago. He is not asking you and me to do anything that he did not do.
Now, He may provide answers to some of those things that are natural and normal for us in the next few years as we build a temple. I do not know how that will all work out. But we'll have much men and cattle in the little villages that are raised up around Jerusalem so that it might be rebuilt out of the desolation that it has become all these generations. He shall see his seed, verse 10. He shall prolong his days forever, and the pleasure of the eternal shall prosper in his hand. So that which he forsook for a glorious future is going to be given to him. And we are what he wants to share it with. It is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Says, fear not, little flock. You little sheep. It is his good pleasure. It's what he so mightily desires. Christ can look back and see that all his desires as a young man to marry and have children, which are natural to a man, were unfulfilled so that he might see you and me as his generation, as his little sheep, as his bride in the future. He was willing to give up all that for us. Verse 11, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. He's going to be so pleased when all this happens and when we respond and he can give us his kingdom. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Those who stand and are strong in the eternal, he is going to share his reward with. Remember what it says in Revelation? He will come and his reward is with him to give to the holy apostles and the prophets all his flock. He's going to share it with us. Satan offered him the world after 40 days of fasting and he turned it down for the future to share with us. And now he is going to be coming back in his glory and bring his reward and share it with those of us who will be strong. Because he has poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressions or transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He's our high priest today, our intercessor, our mediator, the one who goes to God when you and I sin. And Christ is there at the Father's right hand, and He says, Hey, Dad, I was there. I know what that was like. Be patient with that one. Save that one. I'll work with them. I'll bring them around. Don't reject him. He's there as our mediator. He who suffered in every way as we have. We are coming tonight to offer ourselves humbly, divesting ourselves of pride, vanity, ego, self, and recommit ourselves to He who is able to save us all through our Father in heaven. Tonight is a night to be much remembered.